this is a film podcast. No, I just want to make sure I get my Green Bay Packer helmet in the yeah, shot. Yeah, I was going to say. Wisconsin Badgers. So just got I just got to make sure my head doesn't knock that over. Do you have the Bears back there? Do you want to keep this talk going or not? Do you want to just, <laughs> you just give me a paper cut and pour lemon juice while you're at it? <laughs> Michael, who's your favorite team? You know, I love football. So I grew up in Minnesota, so I'm sorry for the Packers-Vikings rivalry, but uh, San Francisco, I've always liked. I lived in San Francisco for 25 years. You know what we say in Wisconsin? You know what this is? That's a Minnesota Vikings Super Bowl ring right there. We're just getting to know each other. This is <laughs> starting out kind of rough. There's a new field within economics now that we have the technological capabilities to redesign the safety net in such a way that it always pays to work, it always pays to rise. Benefits can be designed in such a way that you're always taking a step forward. And then giving people agency, the wherewithal, and having assistance to navigate all of that can really move the needle on poverty and upper mobility. in Piazza today with a fabulous guest, uh, someone we have admired for so long. It is former House Speaker Paul Ryan, um, who is a quote unquote retired politician at a very early age, but still so active um, and engaged in uh, building our nation, uh, which is why we have him today with us in Piazza. Michael? Yeah, so we're just um, really anxious for the Ford conversation because uh, Speaker Ryan uh, not only was obviously incredibly accomplished and we're so grateful for the service to our country, but I think the best is yet to come. So we're anxious to have our conversation about uh, what are the different things that uh, Paul's doing. So welcome. Hey, the pleasure's mine. Michael and Jeannie, thanks so much. Um, I prefer to call myself a recovering politician than a retired politician, but, uh, but it's nice. Jeannie, you and I go back, I mean, back when I was a staffer, back to the Bill Bennett Hudson Institute Empower America days. You know, we knew each other back in the 90s. So it's nice to see you again. And I'm excited about being on, on, on in Piazza. So thanks for having me. It's great to see you too. And, you know, we, we created this podcast because we felt like there had to be, you know, I, I as you know, I'm Italian and, and Michael loves and aspires to be Italian as so many people do out there, I'll just say. Um, and we thought about what, you know, the, the piazza of old and is still very much today in many places in Italy and all around the world where you come to converse and you kvetch about what's happening in public. You talk about um, things that are happening in your family, and you try to make life better by connecting and and being um, good people. And that's the path that we've um, we've seen you on since since you decided to um, leave uh, your formal public life. So we'd love to chat with you about what you're doing to expand opportunity. It's so ever present in all of what we um, support and embrace. So tell us first and foremost about the, the organization you represent now and the great work you're doing. Well, thanks. But well, first of all, I'm Irish, so that means I'm envious of Italian food. Um, so, uh, you have good, good beer. That's the one thing we got. We got good beer. We got Guinness. We got Smithics. We got, you know, Murphy's. I can go on. Um, and then there's Italian food. <laughs> so uh, I'm sitting here in, in our foundation's office in Janesville, Wisconsin. 
Um, I created a foundation called the American Idea Foundation, um, a, a premise I've always believed in, which is a country rooted in natural law and natural rights, where the condition of your birth does not determine the outcome of your life is sort of, that's what the American idea is. And it's a, it's a foundation, a 501c3 dedicated to upper mobility. And Frank, and, and specifically we're attaching sort of center right tactics, free market solutions to the problem of poverty. Uh, I spent a lot of my time in my career um, on, the, on poverty issues, whether I was chairing budget committee ways and means or a speaker um, working on a, a number of laws, we got into law. Um, I always wanted to build what I thought was the proper poverty fighting agenda from a center right perspective. Um, we did get a number of those laws in place and now we have a foundation dedicated to, to properly executing those laws and promoting these ideas. Um, I'm also on the faculty at Notre Dame. I teach in their economics department and I'm on the board of, of, a, of a wing of the Notre Dame economics department called LEO, Laboratory for Economic Opportunity which works very closely with my foundation, frankly, on, um, on doing randomized control trials on poverty solutions. Mm. We can get into the details if you'd like, but what our foundation does is we're basically trying to build a bank of scalable, replicable poverty solutions that, that, that manifest our principles, um, work, thrift, saving, um, helping people out, uh, customizing solutions to getting people up and out of poverty. Um, self-reliance, you name it. And, and there are a number of laws that I worked on when I was speaker that we got done that we want to make sure are well executed. And so that's what my foundation does. And then the, the third thing I do in my sort of three-legged stool of vocational things is I'm a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and I work on poverty solutions there. And we're in a big project working on um, sort of rebuilding the social safety net for the 21st century um, using lessons we've learned uh, and using new technologies that I think can really make the safety network a lot better. So that's the sort of that's what I'm doing these days. Yeah, I think when you talk about you know, poverty and the importance of how to really have a, a systematic and strategic way to attack that, I don't think there could be anything more important as a foundational principle for how to fix things in the country. I think what a lot of people call structural racism, I think it's really structural poverty that the Very fact that. So your future shouldn't be determined by how well you selected your parents. Yeah. So what are some of the key, and I, I, know, the, I know that the American Idea Foundation is really evidence-based, you know, right. in terms of the, the focus. What are some of the kind of key pieces to that right now? Yeah, there are different kinds of poverty based on conditions. We focused on the most stubborn form of poverty, which is basically intergenerational poverty. Uh, poverty that is so stubborn that it's, 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 it's usually in, in families and communities that have seen poverty for a long time, um, where you have multiple generations and very much lacking of opportunity. Because there's situational poverty. There's, there's, there's employment-based poverty. You have a healthcare problem. You lose your job. You're temporarily in poverty. We have tools that can kind of fix that pretty well. But it's the stubborn, multi-generational poverty that has layers of problems that need to be gotten to um, to really break the back of poverty. Um, so that's what we focus on. Um, I, I wrote a law with Patty Murray um, called the Evidence Act, and that's where we spent a lot of our time on. And I'm going to back up for a second. Um, I spent a lot of my time in Congress. Ways and Means Committee, when I was chairman, is in charge of all the welfare laws, for example. And we were working at another round of welfare reform, a disability reform. And I kept finding myself in these ideological battles with the left. And the result of that was nothing got done. I mean, 
you just have these ideological partisan impasses on, on ways to try and fight poverty. And, and I get kind of frustrated that we weren't making a lot of progress because unless your party runs everything, you really can't get a lot done in these areas involving the social safety net. So we took a step back. I got some ideas from some economists, Raj Chetty at Harvard, a guy named Jim Sullivan at Notre Dame, who, who told me that there's such a great new field of science called evidence-based policymaking, where you can use data and analytics and apply them to poverty programs to measure what works and what doesn't work. And wouldn't it be nice to apply this to what government does? So that had never been done before. We were measuring efficacy or success in the war on poverty based on effort inputs. How many programs do we have? How much money are we spending? How many people are on the programs? And we weren't measuring results and outcomes. So I, I asked my friend, Patty Murray, she and I had done some budget deals together. We're, she's a total progressive. We don't agree on much. Can you do this commission with me to figure out how to release this data so that researchers and policymakers can glean from the data what works and what doesn't? We had Ron Haskins, a good guy from the Brookings Institute, you know, uh, try to make it very bipartisan, uh, chair the commission. They gave us results. We took that, put it in a bill, made it law in the lame duck, at, literally at my last week in Congress, the lame duck session of, the, of uh, in 2019 before, um, uh, before uh, we lost our majority. So I pushed this through lame duck. The Evidence Act is now law. It's being deployed. And now, um, as this law is unfolding, we the public, researchers, data scientists, and get at federal poverty programs to look at the data to see what works and what doesn't. You can replicate that also in the private sector and the charitable sector, which is what we do at Notre Dame. And, and, and the totality of all of this is using economics and data science to find out what works and what doesn't work. And I, I believe that our, our principles will be validated by, by the evidence. And by the way, if it's not, then maybe I need to rethink a premise or two right. um, so that we can go find out what, move the needle, get past the ideological partisan fights and just go with what works. And we're just beginning to see a lot of payoff, I think, from this. And what my foundation does is it's building the first ever data clearinghouse of all these evidence-based policies so that anybody in America whether you're a charity, you know, a YMCA in Spokane, Washington, who wants to deal with addiction or homelessness in LA or Tallahassee or wherever, you can go to the American Idea Foundation's data clearinghouse. What's been done in this area that I care about that's close to my, you know, situation, rural, urban, whatever. And so that I don't have to reinvent the wheel. I can look at what has already been done and what has proven to work so we can build and scale and replicate successful models of poverty alleviation. And that's basically what we're trying to do here so that we basically have a new wing of social science, which is evidence-based policymaking. I know I'm going on here. No, it's, it's, it, it's amazing. No, Very it's amazing. It. And I think it validates. And by the way, you know, Jeannie and I are Catholics. I don't know your, 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 your blend, Michael, um, but we call this subsidiarity and solidarity in, in, in conjunction with one another. Really important principles that say, you know, solve problems in your community scale up when and where you should, um, but get involved person to person, eye to eye, soul to soul. And that that process of reintegrating the poor with the rest of society, um, I think brings the human element to this, the human capital, the interaction that we need that I think is going to really move the needle on this stubborn, persistent problem of poverty we've had in America. 
you know, and at the heart of what you're saying, and it's incredibly exciting, is this thread that you have had throughout your whole career of empowerment, right? You know, I met you when you were in Power America. There were empowerment zones. They became opportunity zones thanks to you and your leadership. And I guess, you know, that's where, whether it is economics and education always blend. But I know that you guys have all seen this. When people feel like they have control and authority, even if they don't have everything the next person has, they do feel that sense of empowerment that they can do anything. And I just see that so much missing today. You know, on one hand, there's this, there's, I mean, parents today are rabid after what they've gone through with COVID. I mean, they are, they, teachers on the front lines have been amazing, but those people who actually realize that they could actually help educate their own child are now like, wow, I'm going to go out and do my own thing. I'm going to start my own school. I'm going to create my own community, whatever. And I feel like that same feeling in every part of your life is something that unless you've gone through that difficulty, you don't see. So how do we help people understand what it is to give them that sort of agency, if you will? And to take control of your own life and they have the dignity and the, and, and the, and the great feelings that come with that. Um, I think there are tested um, methods of doing this. Um, one of the things that I'm enamored with is this case manager um, um, strategy. Uh, it's a big Catholic charity model, but there are a lot of other groups do this, where you have um, a person that is attached to, um, uh, let's just say, a social worker at Catholic Charities, just for example. We're testing a bunch of these. There's a program in Dallas-Fort Worth called Padua that, that we're really, to borrow an Italian phrase, that we're really enamored with that's making a huge difference, where you, you, you assist a person who is trying to build a plan to get out of poverty, stay with them for a number of years, but you're giving them agency and you're helping them design a plan for them themselves to work themselves out of poverty and grow themselves out of poverty and, and confront and address their problems. And, and a case manager helps them basically design a plan. It's kind of like a McKinsey consultant for the poor to help them design a plan to get out of their problems, to be there as an assistant to them, um, to have them organize benefits and things like that, but, but, but have carrots and sticks, um, incentives and disincentives. Mm based on good behavior that, 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 that effectuates and executes this plan to get a person out of poverty. And we're finding that, that starting with self-respect, starting with accountability and personal responsibility, um, along with a window and a picture of what your life can look like that you can take control of is really powerful. And if you do and structure this the right way, it's extremely powerful. Um, so, so I think there are models out there that can be looked at and learned from and replicated. At the same time, one of the things I focus on at AEI is we call them benefit cliffs. I'm an old supply sider. I hate big marginal income tax rate increases because it, 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 it stifles work and investment and innovation. Well, if you're taking three steps forward to get out of poverty and you're doing well, and then you all of a sudden lose a bunch of benefits like childcare or something like that, you take four steps backwards or it just doesn't pay to, to rise, so you don't. So there's a big benefit problem, we think, that can be fixed and smoothed out with new technology. Um, and that's what digital technology can get us. And that's something we're working on. So I think there's, there, there, there's a new field within economics now that we have the technological capabilities and digital um, technology to redesign the safety net in such a way that it always pays to work, it always pays to rise. Benefits can be designed in such a way that you're always taking a step forward. Yeah. And then giving people agency, the wherewithal, 
and having assistance to navigate all of that can really move the needle on poverty and upper mobility. Well, I think, and just to cut to a current um, area that I think is causing tremendous challenges as the economy uh, wants to move forward, is there's not an there's there's a big incentive not to work. Exactly. Yeah, uh, and and it's actually incredible. And you know, again, people are going to act what's in their best interest. And if it's their better in, best interest not to work, guess what? They don't work. And then people are rational to- actors. People exactly. do rational things. If if it doesn't pay or make sense to take take a step in this direction, you're not going to take a step in that direction. It's just that simple. People are rational. Yeah, you know, capitalism works. I mean, we we think there's a modified version. I call it contemporary capitalism, but supply side economics is a key part of it. You know, we're talking a lot about empowerment and opportunity in this podcast. And so we really wanted to give a shout out to one of our partners, the Academica organization. It's a global network of public charter schools, digital learning communities, colleges, and nonprofit organizations. They have some 150,000 students across 200 institutions globally, 15 national blue ribbon schools in Florida where Academica is based. They created some of the first uh, dual diploma programs globally. They have a K-16 network and they um, and they have a diverse network of schools across the country that empower families by educating their students well and give people opportunities they wouldn't otherwise have. So we're grateful to Academica um, for sponsoring in Piazza with speaker Paul Ryan. So go to Nord. I mean, I, I'm fascinated by your involvement in Notre Dame. And I, you, I know you're a Catholic, but you didn't go to Notre Dame. You, you started there in 2019. Yeah, my only connection to, to Notre Dame is I played football for Coach Holtz back at University of Minnesota. Oh yeah, so, so yeah, I, beca- yeah, I remember that. So I became a fan of Notre Dame, you know, just through through being a you know being an admirer of Coach Holtz. But Notre Dame is a very special place, right? I mean, just the 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 rigor of academics, the, the excellence in sports, but then this community, mm-hmm. which just seems to make it remarkable. What what attracted you to Notre Dame, and how have you liked being a professor, being a, being a lecturer? I think it's one of the best things I've ever done. I just love it. Uh, I got a lot of cool offers from different schools. I won't name the other ones, um, you know, four or five other schools. And um, I just felt most comfortable in Notre Dame. Uh, just the philosophy, student body. Um, frankly, when they called me, um, the, the, the president of the provost, guys I've become good friends with, said, you know, we want some conservatives to come and give us balance on our campus in our department. I was... That's not what you hear these days anymore. So I'm like, I'm in, I'm in. <laughs> so um, I, I, I spend most of my time in the economics department. That's where I, I'm, I'm on that, the, the adjunct faculty there. Big open minds, polite kids, and um, a philosophy at Notre Dame and a spirit at Notre Dame of service um, of, of, of the whole student, you know, and, and they really take their Catholic social teaching very seriously. I'd say, I don't know, it's maybe half the campus isn't Catholic, but they understand these principles. And Notre Dame takes its mandate and its, its, its principles very, very seriously. And um, it's a very pluralistic and tolerant um, student body and faculty of divergent views. So um, that's why I'm there. You know, and they, and they espouse, of course, that wonderful philosophy of servant leadership, which, yes. you know, you, um, you showed obviously in being public service for so long, there's not a lot of people out there who'd like to think about like being in Congress and being, you know, a huge leader um, globally in that way. But it is. I mean, it's a, it's a. It's, sometimes it can be thankless, right? 
Um, I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing with our listeners kind of your transition, how it was transitioning out. And then like for people out there who are saying to themselves, I've always wanted to be in Congress. I want to be governor. I want to be a state legislator. You know, there are a lot of people, which I'm so grateful for that I still see every day who want to be in that position. What would you say to them? Well, I encourage everybody to do this, that thinks like that, that wants that. Um, Not everybody that does that is necessarily wired correctly for it. Um, to, to answer your first question, Jeannie, um, the transition out was, was, was really wonderful because frankly, when I took the job as speaker in 2015, you know, I had three kids at home and, and I saw my kids effectively on Sundays for about mm. four years. And it became really clear to me, and I lost my dad when I was a sophomore in high school, it became really clear to me that um, if I did another, a third term as speaker, I already stacked up two terms my kids were going to get out of high school and I really would not have known them. So the Catholic guilt, speaking of Catholicism, kicked in pretty hard. And, and frankly, I knew that we got so much done in the first half of the Trump presidency, but the second half was going to be nothing but politics. Nothing was going to get out of the Senate. It was going to be all political. And then two more years go by and my kids, you know, my daughter is already in college. I just needed to go because I wanted to have a relationship with my family, my kids, that, mm-hmm. that I never had with my dad. And I, and I didn't have a choice in that matter. This one I did. So um, it was the right thing for me. I, I felt gratified. I did 20 years in Congress. Didn't get everything done I wanted to get done, but it got a lot of it done. And um, I always thought I'd have a second career anyway. I never wanted to be a lifer. You mm-hmm. know, I saw the guys in Congress that were there like 40 years. I did 20. And, you know, they're just curmudgeons. They're like, you know, they're yeah. angry people. I didn't want to be that. So I knew, you know, to get, get out and go do other cool stuff. I'm doing that now. I enjoy it. I'm still really close with a lot of people in Congress. I just got off the phone with my hometown congressman before doing your Zoom here. Uh, so I spent a lot of time. I still have a lot of good friends I keep in good touch with, but uh, was happy to do it. What I tell people who um, want to run for Congress, um, I'm worried there's more beers than doers in Congress these days, more entertainers than policymakers. Um, the entertainment wing of both parties, the Republican Party and the, the Democratic Party are the ascendant wings. That's hollow. That's carnival barking. That's 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 swinging for the fences on ratings. That's not, you know, digging into policy or, or compromising or getting things done. And so I try to discern for my own sake, what kind of person is is asking me mm-hmm. this question? Mm-hmm. And I try to I try to glean out of, of a person. Are you are you a beer or are you a doer? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a doer then you want to go scale a meritocracy of ideas and persuasion um, and make a difference. And that means you're not going to be the perfect, you know, um, celebrity entertainer. You're not going to be high fived on all the websites and the cable news and the talk radios. You know, you're going to have to go get bloodied up with compromises, but you'll make a difference. You'll move the needle. You'll be a, you'll be writing the policy, turn on cable TV tonight and you'll probably see an entertainer on cable TV saying some um, mannequin kind of a thing, saying some kind of a shrouded thing. But tonight, there'll be other people in the U.S. Capitol rolling up their sleeves, working their tail off on policy, trying to move the country forward, trying to make things happen. And they're not going to be known for it. They're not going to be on TV. They're not going to be famous, but they're going to be the people who actually get things done. And, and that's the kind of person that I think we ought to have in Congress. And both sides have both of these types. And I do my best to try and encourage you know, yeah. those types of people to run for Congress. And, and I worry less of them are running and more of the latter are running. 
And I think there's another piece to that. Well, at the heart of that, and and just a compliment and just a shout out, you knew policy because you worked as a staffer. Yeah. Like when you were a staffer running around for Sam Brownback, and I was like a little peon testifying to tell them to bring stuff to the Capitol, which we did, by the way, and it's now under attack. Whole nother thing, DC Opportunity Scholarship Program. Yeah, I remember it. You knew what, pe- what people were supposed to be voting on, right? And so one of the things that I've noticed as an advocate, Michael, I'm sure when you come to town and you're dealing with folks, you realize it, is we're all, we all really like policy. We want to have discussion about it. And when someone looks at you with that blank stare and there's no staffer behind them handing them the notes, it is sad. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. And I'm going to start using your, um, your consult, your ideas to suggest that. Because like, if you don't know what you don't know, you don't belong in a position like that, right? That's right. So Paul, and, and we didn't mention it, but I believe you're still on the board of, of Fox. And I don't want to talk about being on the board of Fox, but just what's going on in media and free speech. And we talk about Notre Dame wanting to have a different point of view. And we had 4,000 universities in the United States, but one point of view that's permitted. I mean, how serious an issue do you think just freedom of speech and the cancel culture is in terms of how we really can have a debate on ideas and yeah. move the country forward. It's one of the reasons why I chose this board assignment. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I am a classical liberal conservative. So I have my own sort of brand of conservatism and I am not a blood and soil nationalist. So I have my own version of conservatism that I subscribe to. And you'll see on Fox a whole bunch of different, just a variety of types. But one thing, and I love the sports, by the way, on Fox, it's really fun. But, uh, but one thing, that you do get out of Fox is it is one of the last large entities in America that stands up to left wokeism. Um, the conformity of the, 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 the strong conformity of this um, conformity of thought. And there needs to be a force in society that still embraces the concept of pluralism, which is a critical founding principle of America of any kind of a, of, of a republic that we are. And so I think you need to stand up to this stuff. And I think Fox, you know, does it well in some days and sometimes not, but, but at least there's a force out there to give Americans another side of the story and to stand up to this radical leftist conformity that is really, really pretty ugly and kind of tyrannical at the end of the day when you think about it philosophically. So I, I'm happy for its existence. And I obviously think there's always ways to improve this. And on that point, in terms of media and stuff like that, again, we've got, you know, we've all grown up to this generation, like seeing it become alive. And now there's a generation of people who think that is the only, that's the only way media has ever been. Um, and I think there are a lot of people hungering for those facts, which is why they, they, um, they go to Fox so often. You know, Paul, you were talking about digital um, solutions and technology before. I wonder in our last couple of minutes, um, uh, before we start closing down, you know, tech is a huge aspect of the things Michael's working on. I'm, you know, working constantly to try to get innovations into the education, the knowledge sector. I was fascinated, though, and I want to just go back to that when you were talking about the evidence-based work and using technology to expose people, like release date, expose people to solutions. So if you could have like any Silicon Valley entrepreneur, actually they're in Dallas, they're everywhere else now too. They're all gone elsewhere. They've all left yeah. California. But if you could have any of those people um, in front of you, what kind of solution do you think there needs to be out there 
I talk to a lot of people. Uh, Mark Andreessen's a buddy of mine. He's a Wisconsin guy. Runs probably the best VC firm out there. Um, no. oh, 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 oh. oh, sorry. <laughs> what are the like? I got no dog in the fight. Mark, Mark and I used to share a fence, so he's a wonderful guy. So anyway, yes. Well, he's a, he's from New Lisbon, Wisconsin. I bow hunt over there. Yeah. Cool community. Um, so uh, there are people I know in, in in the valley and in other tech areas. Here's the, the basic: is you can use data and analytics um, to find out what works, what doesn't work, but you can design incentives uh, inside of benefits and get rid of whole bureaucracies with digitization. Um, I spend my, a lot of time with the crypto community because I'm just utterly fascinated with crypto, with, with CDBs, central bank digital currencies, stable coins and the rest. And I do believe with programmable money, um, like you can with stable coins, you can design um, something like what Ian Duncan Smith tried to do in, in Great Britain, I don't know, a decade ago with this universal credit it was a good idea, poorly executed because they had bad tech. I think you can do something like that here with a social safety net, save a lot of money, get a mm. lot of waste, a lot of fraud, a lot of bureaucracy, and algorithmically custom benefit designs so that everyone's always taking a step forward and never a step backwards, smooth out benefit cliffs, and, and have the right kinds of incentives to get people up and out of poverty into work. Um, and I think you can do a lot of that with digital technology. And I think there's a lot of technologists out there. Um, I spent the weekend with a couple of just this weekend talking about this stuff. Right. There's a lot you can do. Um, and there's a lot of people in the Valley that could be helpful in this, I think. So just my last question, and you don't know this, I don't think about Jeannie or myself, but Jeannie is on the board of a SPAC. I'm a, a CEO of a SPAC, a chairman of a SPAC. And I am too. SPAC. I know I was going to say, you're in the SPAC world. How did you get involved in the SPAC world and how's the experience going so far? If you asked me what a SPAC was two years ago, I <laughs> thought it would have been a kitchen utensil or something like that. I didn't know what it was. Um, I actually don't like traditional SPACs. It's one of the reasons why I got involved in the SPAC world. Um, I think the good thing of a SPAC is it gets the retail investor in the game of being a part of IPOs. So it helps democratize IPOs. It does some smart things like use projections. But one of the things that I think is lacking, what we're trying to fix is alignment of interest. Um, I don't like the notion that the economics for most specs ends at the transaction, which is a hey, good luck with life. Thanks for 25%, we're leaving you alone. Um, we, we do a different structure, which is focus on long-termism. Yeah. Um, our value accrues over time. If the, if the firm does well, we do well, we lock up our shares for three years. My point in saying all of this is I think there needs to be a stack two or 3.0 that focuses on alignment of interests, minimizing dilution and focus on long-termism. Um, you do that in addition to getting the retail investor an opportunity to get involved and getting some firms in the public market early so that public investors, pensions and firefighters and teachers can get a shot at the real growth that comes with that. I think that's a good thing. So frankly, I'm in this game to help reform this space um, a bit more to align all of the principles of capitalism that ought to be represented here. And I think, I think we'll get there. Yeah. Well, I'd love to talk to you about it later, but I completely agree with you hundred percent. Okay. All right. Final, final question. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to comment on um, what you think the school choice movement can do to get even bigger and better. I know you're a yeah, big I mean, fan. Come to Milwaukee. We'll show you how it works. I mean, I'm just telling you, I spent, you know, 20 years, in Milwaukee, I represent the Milwaukee County. Um, it works. The data now shows it. We've had this fight. We were always going to have this fight. I hate to say the SOAR program, you just said DC 
John Boehner really got that going. Then I just leveraged because we are in the majority extension. But if we lose all three House, Senate, and White House, then they can kill it. And it sounds like that's what they're going to do. That's just a shit. There's so many kids in DC that have benefited from this. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you have to show the horror stories that occur when you take it away and the success stories that occur when you implement it. And, and, and we're, we got so much better data. My buddy, Scott Jensen, you know, can, I don't know if you know Scott. Yeah. You must know Scott Jensen. Yeah, of course. Um, and, and, and the Mitchells here. So in Milwaukee, we've been doing this forever. Mm-hmm. We've got great storytellers, Howard Fuller. We have so right. many people who've done such, such great work here. Yeah. I would tell anybody who's a skeptic or who just wants to learn more, come to Milwaukee. We'll show you how it works. Yeah. Awesome. Well, it's a great place to be anyway. And, um, and you know, we'd love to- yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I know I, I went to get a Bucks T-shirt yesterday, and the line was going around the block at Dick's Sporting Good. I couldn't even get in to buy a Bucks yeah, T-shirt. It's absolutely awesome. Yeah. Well, it's um, you know, clear why you they kept electing you. We're so grateful um, for your presence, your leadership, and what you're doing now. And would love to work with you in any way we can help the new foundation and your work there. So thank you so much for joining us, Paul, Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. Um, who otherwise doesn't need any introduction, but links to all of the work he's doing will be on in Piazza website. And as we like to say in Piazza, ci vediamo, or see you soon. Mila grazie. You can find in Piazza wherever you get your podcast. This is a special project of the Center for Education Reform and GSV. Thanks for listening to In Piazza, ci vediamo, or as we say in English, we'll see you soon. I'm Jeannie Allen. Michael Moore. Ciao.